Welcome everyone to the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. I am your host, Neil Pollock, the greatest living American writer, the Santa Claus of popular culture, and the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and many other things. We have a great show for you this week. We're going to talk to film critic Stephen Garrett about two movies, House of Gucci, directed by Ridley Scott, and Licorice Pizza, directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. And Paula Schaefer is going to be here as well to talk about the new Amazon Prime adaptation of the epic fantasy novel series, The Wheel of Time. But first up, we're going to talk to Anne Holiday about a new novel from Gary Steingart called Our Country Friends, and we'll lead off this week with Why Can't We Be Friends? It's a good question, and it's one that I ask myself every day. We'll be right back to talk about Gary Steingart. back on the podcast this week wearing her uh, book critic hat. It's a different hat than she wore the last time we talked to her. Hello, how are you? Hi, I'm good, Neil. How are you? I'm doing fine. So you wrote about uh, a new novel from Gary Steingart, Our Country Friends. You know, Gary Steingart is a, he's a very New York writer. Like I, I consider him to be sort of a, a staple of, of the New York literary scene. If there is such a thing anymore, I don't know. I haven't been to New York in years, but this novel is interesting because Gary Steingart is also Russian, Russian by birth. And you kind of compare it to like a, to like a Chekhov play. Oh, he establishes right at the beginning, the comparison to Chekhov before the first word of the novel. There's a list of the dramatis personae, and it feels very much like you're reading a Chekhov play that, you know, this person who's a landowner, his wife, a doctor, and one of the characters is just listed as a gentleman. So it really feels like the cast of a a Chekhov play, and it takes place in a country home where there are a lot of people both related to each other and not related to each other with different relationships and longing and romance and self-involvement. And um, it's full on Chekhov and very, very funny. Well, yeah. So one of the things that you uh, pointed out that is interesting to me is that this is a uh, pandemic novel. Like it takes place in the summer of 2020. When New Yorkers of a certain uh, financial class were escaping the city. That's right. And I think, you know, it's very aspirational. Uh, The main character, Sasha, and his wife, Masha, um, they don't really have the sort of money to be hosting in the way they are. You know, their friends have most of them fairly gourmet tastes, um, kind of liberal, gourmet, literary Brooklyn tastes, I would say. So it opens with him running around to the liquor store and the fancy little market. And I, I mean, he spends over a thousand dollars at the liquor store in anticipation of his guests' arrival, and then they just keep eating that way. And if you like to read about food, this is a great novel because it really it sounds delicious. I wish it had recipes, but it's unsustainable, and he doesn't know how to deal with the local workmen who are being brought in to deal with the plumbing and the Wi-Fi, and you know everything's just kind of held together. And it's a city person who is. Uh, looked at with disdain by the people who've been born and bred there. In, in upstate 
upstate New York. In upstate New York. I think, you know, it, I have friends that um, live outside of Hudson and outside of Chatham. And I think those are the two towns that appear in it. It's it's so funny that the uh, I mean, like you mentioned in your piece, there have been short stories. There's been, you know, endless nonfiction written about the COVID pandemic. And there was that awful supplement in the New York Times where people were <laughs> writing their dystopian COVID fiction or whatever. But that the first like novel that kind of made it through the gate is actually like not about a disease at all, but it's like kind of a comedy of manners about bourgeois people frolicking in the country. Yes, absolutely. And one thing that I found notable about it is these bourgeois people, I think most of us would assume, oh, they're all white. And they're not, not at all. There are some white characters, but each one has something that sort of moves them to the side of what we think of as a Karen or a Chet or what, you know, whatever that stuff is. We have two characters who are Russian born. They are the adopted parents of a Chinese girl. There is a famous white actor who is very much always at pains to know that like he had he's a one quarter Turkish. Then there is a woman from Appalachia who's a little younger than the others and has written sort of a hillbilly elegy type of memoir. So they're bourgeois, but like they have lots of other things going on. It's not simple at all. But that's that's part of like sort of that contemporary like bourgeois liberal aspiration is that you have like this um, multicultural group of friends. You know, they're all basically the same in terms of their their social standing. But, you know, they're Korean and uh, black and Hispanic and it's a a variety of of backgrounds. And that's right. Well, and one thing that is important, there's no black friends at the colony. And um, there's a moment when. They don't mention George Floyd by name, but about almost exactly midway through the book, there's a chapter that starts about there's some very distressing news coming out of the Midwest. And each of the adults responds to this news in a very different way. And they never say the name of George Floyd. You know, they feel very removed from it. But one of the characters can't stop watching the footage of the officers kneeling on George Floyd's neck and another is very aware that one of the officers is Asian, that he's, you know, Hmong. He is also a child of immigrants. So it just becomes really complex. And, you know, all the events of the summer, you know, there's no, there are no Black Lives Matter marches coming near them. So they feel very removed from all this stuff that's going on, as they are also removed for quite some time from COVID. Right. Well, that's that's all part of it, too, though. It's like, you know, you're we were just, you know, getting used to pandemic life and then uh, all the racial strife of the summer of 2020 exploded. And, you know, for a lot of people, it was something that was happening on TV or on Twitter, (laughs) you know, not not for everyone, certainly. But so I I think that it's also, you know, quite funny and prescient. Yeah. Who knows? I don't know what Steingart's writing process was on this book. Like, did he just did he just jam it all out in the fall? I mean, this it's only November 2021. (laughs) Yeah, I think he applied himself pretty hard to the writing process. I don't think he was taking too many breaks. And his work, all of his novels, and, you know, he also has a memoir and had a um, kind of a horrifying and personal, well-written article recently about how he had struggled with the effects of a botched circumcision since he was seven years old. But he always brings a lot of himself to every novel, I think, that he writes. So I think he has a home in this area. So maybe that's where he wrote it. I don't know. 
Yeah. Well, he himself is like not a, you know, he's not a struggling writer. I mean, maybe he is. I mean, we're all struggling in some ways, but I'm just saying like, you know, he's a successful writer. So it he's makes a very sense. successful, very recognized novel. And one thing that I like about him is, I don't know if he still does this, but there was a time when he would blurb anything. If you asked him to blurb your book, he would do it. And I just thought that's so wonderful. Like that's the worst part of writing a book is when you have to go hat in hand and truffle up some blurbs. And here was somebody who was so successful that was like, yes, absolutely. I'll do it. I used to do that. And then I became less successful. And I was like, no. (laughs) I'm not blurring anymore. No, you blurb me. But I think with with uh, you know Gary Shangard's book is interesting. Like I think he's at his best when he's like kind of operating in this social realist realm. Like you know, I like he had a sci-fi novel out a few years ago that was pretty popular that I wasn't so into. Uh, but I love it when he does this. Um, operates in this uh, field. It's so great. And I mean, you know, when I say it's Chekhovian, as every other you know person who's been writing or interviewing about this book has said, it is Chekhovian, but it's not. It's definitely of the 21st century in a very big way. The, the eight-year-old child is obsessed with BTS, the Korean supergroup, and one of the adults who's childless and recently divorced and just has this huge desire to connect with the child, almost luring her away from her mother, buys all these BTS posters and a, a scratchy bed set that she puts on the bed and the child comes over to visit and they're, you know, laying on top of the bed set and studying Korean so that the child will be able to communicate on the glorious day that she one day meets all the boys in BTS. And um, this adult friend who's connecting with her so much is also Korean-American and is of the three high school friends that are there that are all children of immigrants. She's the only one who didn't retain her parents' language and was dissuaded from her mother of studying Korean. So she's teaching Korean to this child, but she's also sort of studying it herself. Right. Well, uh, it sounds it sounds great. It sounds very of the moment. It sounds very juicy and fun. So our oh, yeah, it's so juicy. <laughs> it's yeah. really, they all behave really badly, and you get inside everybody's head, too, which I love. Well, you sold me on it. Our Country Friends by Gary Steingart is out now, and it gets a high recommendation from Anne Holiday and from Book and Film Globe, and we'll talk to you soon. Great. Have a wonderful weekend. It's time for our weekly segment. Let's talk about movies with Stephen. <laughs> you can't come up with anything better, but Stephen Garrett is here, as he often is, and he's got a couple of movies to talk uh, to us about this week. The first one is House of Gucci, directed by Ridley Scott, featuring an incredibly uh, well-talked-about and incredibly hammy performance by Lady Gaga, and <laughs> a bunch of other stuff as well. So, Stephen, tell us a little bit about House of Gucci. Well, you know, it's funny you say Hammy. I, I, I thought she actually was pretty pretty good for what she was asked to do, and I think the ask was really muddy because you see a lot of very talented actors sometimes being Hammy, sometimes underplaying, uh, but kind of being adrift and not really knowing what this is. Is this is this high opera? Is this high drama? Is this high camp? And it's all of these things and none of these things. And it's I, I, I kind of blame Ridley Scott. It, it's weird. You'd think a pro like him would know. But maybe he just was ill-suited for the material because it's kind of a mess. 
Right. And then you know, this is a there's this wave of content about the of this golden age of fashion, right? There was a Halston show starring Ewan McGregor on right. that we covered. And then there was that, you know, the murder of Gianni Versace, the Ryan right. Murphy show. That's um, right. And now you have House of Gucci. And I'm like, OK, what what is Ridley Scott got to offer to the uh, this genre of fashion melodrama that we haven't seen? Yeah, yeah, and maybe he felt like he would add a certain amount of polish or prestige to the material because the two shows you mentioned are both Ryan Murphy, you know, kind of campy, reveling in all the tawdry excesses. And I think maybe Ridley Scott was thinking, oh, well, I, I'm, this is a very interesting story. And it actually is uh, this interesting story of generational wealth and, you know, family businesses and how they more often than not self-destruct after three generations. And that's ha what happens with this family. It is kind of an interesting story based on a book that came out about 20 years ago, which was well received. And, it, you know, it's a real cautionary tale. So there's there's a real feast to be had here, but it gets lost. And the filmmaking, I don't know, there's a weird pacing to it. There's a weird tone to it. His music choices are very odd. He'll go from like really obvious opera needle drops to like George Michael singing Faith and then ends the movie with Tracy Chapman duetting with Pavarotti. And you're just like, what is happening here? It's weird. I, I kind of admire a, a tonal train wreck sometimes. <laughs> well, you're in for a treat, man. This is perfect for you. So in addition to Lady Gaga, you have Al Pacino. It's a movie about Italians, so he or De Niro have to appear. And then Jeremy Irons is in it as well, right? Yeah, I rarely – I can't think of the last time I saw Jeremy Irons with an accent. I think he did a Polish accent in the movie that came out like 35 years ago called Moonlight, which is like fantastic. But uh, mostly he's got that gravelly, posh British accent, and here he's got that crossed with a sort of weirdly inflected Italian mash. And again, it's like there's a scene where the two of them, where Al Pacino and Jeremy Irons are acting, and it's just hilarious. The two are just chewing up these weird accents in these extravagantly strange clothes, and it's just an odd beast. It's neither fish nor fowl. I've seen some reviews of House of Gucci already, and I, I feel like it's got like a chance to be a sort of camp classic. But your review seems to indicate that maybe it's not as campy as it needs to be in order to be that. Kind of, yes. I mean, I, I think there are too many talented people involved trying to make it something good, and they don't want to debase the material or make themselves look like caricatures. I mean, even Jared Leto, who's wearing a crazy prosthetics and is balding and looks totally unlike himself, it makes his character more sympathetic than you'd think, but also doesn't make his character as outrageous as you'd think. So it's I strange. It ends up being a little boring and a little tacky. Right. You know, you just think like this is something that has a who should get that uh, the I, Tanya treatment, for instance. You know, you yes. want to go you want to go over the top with something like this. Yeah. But I think with that, you know, uh, Tanya Harding, you know, was kind of self-professed kind of white trash from the wrong side of the tracks. And this is Gucci, you know, so it's supposed to be stylish and elegant and it tries to be. But the family involvement with the company ends in such a train wreck and it ends with a murder that it's hard to keep it from getting tawdry. But it should be a tragedy instead of this tawdry kind of excessive camp fest. Are the clothes at least good? Yeah, they're pretty good. Everybody looks yeah. great. Everybody looks great. Well, you would hope there'd be some, yeah. some solid leather. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It, it I'm sure they all got some nice swag out of the whole thing. Well, for, if, if for lovers of leather porn and maybe not much else, House of Gucci, directed, directed by Ridley Scott, is out now. 
and is at least going to be in uh, a conversation for some Oscar nominations for the performances. But you shouldn't put a lot of hope or money on, on this movie. Not really, but, you know, it's like it, it really is a conversation piece. I mean, it's good for Thanksgiving weekend because I think people are going to have many different reactions to it, you know, because it really is. It's not great, but it's not awful. It's fascinatingly mediocre. If you're lucky, your family is arguing about <laughs> Thanksgiving. My God, that would be that would be uh, ideal if that's what people are talking about at Thanksgiving instead of, I don't know, like COVID policies or, or gas prices or whatever other right. boring crap they're going to be talking about. And on the other hand, we have another uh, a movie that you re- reviewed this week, A Licorice Pizza, the new movie from Paul Thomas Anderson. And this is uh, this is something you recommend very highly. Very highly. I think it's one of his best. It, it might be, you know, top. Two or three. I know you're a big fan of Boogie Nights, which I oh, yes. have some issues with, but is never less than like fantastically entertaining. And this is that, but it also doesn't have the kind of, I don't know, the showy braggadociousness of that film. I mean, it's set in Hollywood. It's about people who work in Hollywood, uh, in and out on the on the edges, but it's a it's just a puppy love love story. It's like a low-key coming of age story, and it's set in the seventies, is that correct? Yeah, I mean, they don't say specifically, but you can kind of glean that it roughly starts in like June 73 and ends in the fall sometime. So it's about a six month period. Right. So there's, you know, it's eight tracks and like and, <laughs> and, and 70s cars and bell bottom pants. And, and that's that's your vibe. Your San Fernando Valley is, is the setting, right? I mean, it's the setting, but it's not the vibe. I think that's what's so magical about it. The vibe is youth and the insecurities of youth and the excitement of youth and and just being out in the world and, and dipping your toe into reality and trying to figure out what your place is. And you're surrounded by opportunities. You're surrounded by adversaries. You're surrounded by weird encounters with strange people. There's, of course, people have been talking about Bradley Cooper as, as John Peters, who does not disappoint. There's some wonderful, you know, kind of moments with him that are harrowing and hilarious. John Peters is not someone I'm familiar with. John Peters, oh my God. He was a hairdresser uh, who dated Barbara Streisand and who later became a producer and then a studio head. He produced Batman. That was his big thing. And then I think he very briefly was the head or co-head with Peter Goober of uh, Columbia Pictures. Was he the model for Warren Beatty's character in Shampoo? I think he was. I think he right. was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right, so that makes sense. All right, and so so he's he exists in the movie, but it's really like a there's a sort of an avatar for Paul Thomas Anderson himself, right? I mean, Trying yes yes and no. I, I think he said uh, that the film was kind of inspired by a lot of things, including Gary Getzman, who was a producer who worked uh, for a long time with Jonathan Demme and then later started working with Tom Hanks. A very successful producer and also started as a child actor and had been in uh, like a movie with Lucille Ball and just had a weird, crazy, including encounters with John Peters, encounters with other people. He had a waterbed business he started when he was a teenager. He had a pinball business that he started. All of this is in the movie. And Cooper Hoffman, Philip Seymour Hoffman's son, plays Gary Valentine is his name. But he's basically more this Gary Getzman guy. Well, that's interesting because, you know, obviously Philip Seymour Hoffman played so prominently in Paul Thomas Anderson's earlier films. He's in Boogie Nights. He's in The Master. So the main character is his son. 
That's right. Is is Philip Seymour Hoffman's son, and it wasn't stunt casting, and I don't think he necessarily wanted to put his late best friend's son into a situation that would have been uncomfortable, problematic, or embarrassing. But I think what he rather wanted to do was put people who were in his life already who he really loved and wanted to showcase, you know, who were kind of inspiring in their own mind. Alana Haim is the love interest. And it turns out that Paul Thomas Anderson got to know them like 10 years ago and then discovered that their mother was his like grade school teacher. And like not only that, but like his favorite grade school teacher. And so there's an endearingness that he has to the people who are in this movie. And there's a lot of it just feels very emotionally real and very honest and very loving. You know, it's not showboaty the way that like Boogie Nights, like he wasn't a porn star, but he was a kid who grew up on the fringes of the industry of Hollywood. And this is more that story. So you're right. It is autobiographical in that sense, but it's a pastiche of other people's experiences as well as his own. And people he loves are helping him to make the film. If that makes sense. Yeah, well, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson's movies tend to be have tended to be big in a, in a sense. I mean, not blockbuster, you know, sci-fi movies, but you know, Boogie Nights had a, was big and operatic. There Will Be Blood was big and operatic. Magnolia had a broad scope to say the least, and you know, and The Master as well. So these are to name just four. You know, he tends to go big, and it sounds like this movie is a smaller, more intimate thing. Yeah, it is. You know, it's more like punch drunk love. You know, it's more like um, I think Inherent Vice was his sort of psychedelic film noir. But you're right. He usually swings for the fences, wants to do big topics, big bold faced issues. This is not that. But in a way, it, it kind of is the biggest one, which is how do you find your way in life and how do you fall in love and how do you how do you connect with somebody? You know, I mean, it, it really is intimate and small scale and yet so deeply wonderful and profound in its own way and very relatable. You know, even though it's so site specific, but he also captures that flavor of 1973 just as well as he captures that flavor of being a teenager uh, trying to figure out life. Well, it sounds fantastic. I am not lying when I say there's no way I'm not going to see it in the theater. And and I, you know, I don't love everything Paul Thomas Anderson does. I certainly didn't love Inherent Vice, but it's I mean, this 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 sounds terrific. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. And uh, Stephen's review is up on Book and Film Globe as you're listening to this. You can go read it. You can read it alongside listening to him. Really, <laughs> there you go. For the Book sure. and Film Globe completest. And let me add, too, before uh, I let you go, Stephen, is, you know, you're a Rotten Tomatoes-approved film critic and have been for a while. Sarah Stewart, our, uh, another one of our critics, is Rotten Tomatoes-approved. A couple others are, and I got Rotten tomatoes But That was the highlight of my career when Rotten Tomatoes um, added me to their <laughs> roster. It's like, like the apotheosis of everything. And uh, the whole site now is, has become a Rotten Tomatoes approved site. So Book and Film Globe is, I mean, I think it's its on the verge, man. It's edging. It's edging for all of its readers. Yeah. All right. And Stephen, thank you so much. We <laughs> will talk to you soon on Let's Talk About Movies with Stephen. We, we got to find a better name for this segment, man. How you nail it? Every, it's just so embarrassment of riches, those titles. kind of golden age of second tier sci-fi adaptations we've had a new version of dune on big screens we had a new version of isaac asimov's foundation 
on Apple TV Plus, and now comes on Amazon Prime, an adaptation of Robert Jordan's fantasy novel series, The Wheel of Time. Paula Schaefer was on this like a shot. She must have pitched this, uh, writing about this to me three months ago. She's like, I have to do The Wheel of Time. I'm like, yeah, that's fine. No one, no one else has laid down a chit for that. So Paula is here to talk to me about the new Wheel of Time adaptation. Hello, Paula. Hello, yes, my social calendar is so busy, I need to plan my short pieces about high fantasy adaptations that far in advance. That's all it is. I didn't I didn't understand that it was it was an obligation thing. I just oh, like Oh yeah, totally. That's it's, it's not nerdy fandom. No. No, no, no. There was certainly no level of dorkitude to that. So here we are. We don't have any advanced screeners of The Wheel of Time. You just watched the first three episodes that Amazon Prime made available, and you wrote a review about it in Book and Film Globe. So The Wheel of Time is, a, it's like you said, high fantasy set in sort of a medieval fantasy setting a la The Lord of the Rings, and it, it, it bears a lot of resemblance in my mind to The Lord of the Rings. Well, you know, um, when I think when Robert Jordan first wrote The Wheel of Time, he was not really like, I've got a brand new idea. I'm going to reinvent the wheel as it is. He was just kind of like, what if I kind of take these tropes and just write a whole new series about it? So it is kind of like Lord of the Rings light. It's kind of less boring and it has more ladies in it mainly. Yeah, there's a lot of ladies. And the main character uh, is played by Rosamund Pike. She's a uh, kind of like a super witch. Moraine, Morgane, Moraine. Moraine, yes. The the Aes Sedai. She's like a magical lady who can do things. On the show, they very much focus on the rings, which is not really part of the mythology of the books necessarily. They have a ring that identifies them, but the show almost makes it seem like that is like a magical signet of some kind. But yeah, but there's there are these women who can tap into the magic, and then there's also sort of semi-magic women called wisdoms who are like faith healers almost. Uh, and you know, then there's like a, a a demon who is emerging back into the world, a la Sauron. And then there are some, you know, there's a bunch of questing youngsters who one of whom is destined to save the world. Called, what's it called? The double dragon? I don't remember what it was. <laughs> the dragon reborn. The dragon reborn, right. Look, I've watched it too. I mean, my wife is she's watched the first season of The Witcher on Netflix four times. So there's there's nothing involving dragons or or witches or you know, you know, mountain settings and people wandering around them that she won't watch. At least at least give it a shot. So this was this was high on the list. And you know, I don't hate it. Well, you know, it, it would be forgivable, though, if you didn't really know what's going on, because they're so excited to tell the story. They kind of just front load everything they think you might need to know into those first couple episodes, just like cramming it in to the point where you almost can't keep up with it because they're introducing new words and terminology that is specific to this universe. And it makes it, you know, for kind of cumbersome viewing. It's not really real immersive because you're like trying to keep notes of what this word means and who that is and so on. Yeah, there's a lot of backstory and a lot of world build before they actually build the world before, you know, the, you're only, you know, I saw a, a smart review that said that, you know, the reason we care about Game of Thrones wasn't because of the world building, but because of the performances and the characters. And, you know, that that thing had a lot of star power. I mean, a lot of most of those people other than Peter Dinklage weren't household names. 
I guess it was Sean Bean, weren't household names when the show started, but boy, you know, the casting was incredible. And, you know, I'm not, I don't think, I don't think the casting from the wheel of time is going to have, it's not going to have the same impact. I mean, Rosalind Pike was already sort of a you know, second tier movie star, but the rest of it, these actors seem kind of, are kind of generic and interchangeable to me. Yeah, they've actually already recast one of the leads for the second season, so... No kidding. Which one? Um, the one who plays Matt, who's like the ne'er-do-well kind of character, who's just scheming and like up to things. They replaced him with somebody else. Really? Well, he, was like, he was actually the one who I thought had the most zip. <laughs> yes, yes, and he won't promote it or anything, so I'd really like to know what the backstory is, if they thought he was terrible or he thought it was terrible or it was mutual or if it was completely unrelated. Who knows? There's all there's always ridiculous drama behind the scenes of these things. But, uh, you know, I just it feels almost like an off like a, like a episode of Xena Warrior Princess or, or the legendary adventures of Hercules than, you know, yes. Game of Thrones or the Lord of the Rings. I mean, it's not I wouldn't say it's like cheap, cheap, but it's kind of cheap feeling in some ways. It's it's not Macy's. It definitely has more of a Ross dress for less vibe. They're trying for quality, but they maybe weren't sure how to get that quality or what the quality was that we're looking for when we watch it. And so it seems kind of tentative. And I think that's the that's the problem with it. It's a little nervous right now. And I'm, I'm hopeful that will kind of smooth out as the story gets going and they actually tell the story instead of telling us about the story they're going to tell us. I'm hoping those things will ease up and it'll just be fun and enjoyable and immersive. And you read all these books or at least some of them, I, right? I did. I read all 14 of the main ones plus the prequel um, while I was recovering from COVID. So it's a very recent read. I, I read all like 15,000 pages over three months. Did it help heal your COVID? It did. It healed me. <laughs> yeah. Well, you could because that's what the Isidai do. <laughs> yes, they did. The magic of the magical women, the Aesidai, healed me uh, completely. No, it just kept my mind occupied. And, you know, yeah. if I got tired of it and fell asleep, it didn't matter. And I could just pick it up because the stories are kind of leisurely and rambling because, I mean, it's 14 books. It's not 14 books full of purpose. Like the thing they set out to do in book one takes until the end of book 14. So it's not like it's ongoing story. It's just all one big thing. It's very rambling. Like, Well, okay, they have renewed it for a second season, but I just don't see 14 seasons of this thing. I mean, it, I, it's just, it doesn't strike me as the we, that Wheel of Time mania it doesn't seem to have seized uh, the world. <laughs> Like Game of Thrones did. <laughs> but once it gets in you, it's in there, and then it does get you. But they also are kind of mixing up the story a lot. Instead of following the books, they're more so overall following the story and throwing in things from the prequel and throwing in things. And, like, in the books, I think it takes four books for you to even start to learn about Matt and Perrin, two of the guys. You don't really see the Aes Sedai until somewhere in book two, so they're trying to, I think, streamline it and make it an effective story with some thrust. And, you know, I'm hopeful they'll do it. <laughs> There's always hope, Paula. <laughs> I always have hope. Right now, it's one of these shows where I'm watching and I'm having to bite my tongue so my wife doesn't call a divorce lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's pretty to look at, though. It's very yeah. pretty. But, but every time I see one of those landscapes, I, I say I am like I'm like saying they're taking the hobbits to Isengard. You know, it's like <laughs> it's like outtakes from Lord of the Rings almost. 
Yeah, I mean, even when the, the creature monster things are called Trollocs, that is really not very far removed from orcs. No. And they did not design-wise go very far from that either. They were like, this works, we've got the template, let's pull that template out and run with it. It's like they're orcs with horns. <laughs> yes, yeah. So, you know, will I watch it all? Yes, absolutely. I will watch every episode they make and probably more than once, if we're being really honest. Well, and if you get COVID again, it's there. It's there for you. <laughs> for your breakthrough case for COVID too. At least and now you can, I, I I don't wanna I don't wanna catch COVID. Uh maybe I already have, I don't know. But I if I do get uh, develop some sort of respiratory illness of any kind, pneumonia, COVID, the flu or whatever, I've got six seasons of the expanse waiting for me. That's the only reason I want to get sick. So, you know, uh, a good binge watch, it, it, it's worth it sometimes. So you're saying you won't turn to the healing powers of the wheel of time? I, I mean, I'm already I'm already immersed in it and uh, it hasn't done much for my allergies. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Maybe it just needs more time. Just give that wheel more time to turn. As yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give it a spin and I might even buy a vowel. All right. Paula Schaefer, thank you so much. We will talk to you uh, on your next nerdy project. Excellent. Thanks a lot, Neil. Big wheel, keep on turning, turning, round, never keep on Thanks, Paula Schaefer, for talking to me about the Wheel of Time. If you see any Trollocs walking down your street, call your local authorities immediately. Also, thanks to Anne Holiday for talking to me about the new Gary Steingart novel, Our Country Friends, and to Stephen Garrett for stopping in to talk about House of Gucci and Licorice Pizza. I am Neil Pollock. I am the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. Keep on reading the site. We are now a Rotten Tomatoes approved website, so you know we're good. And we will talk to you next week. <laughs>